afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on this show, fat mice, dancing shrimp, and stinking eggs. In addition, Bonnie Biafori will join us to discuss online investing hacks. Also, we'll find out what gourd gum is. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Grocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty good. Wow, spring is finally here. It is, and all the parties are coming out of the party time in spring. Didn't we go to one uh, recently? It was sponsored by Orchid. Orchid. Yes, the network to connect us all, right? Where's the network that will connect all the networks? Yeah, I wonder if anyone out there is actually on Orchid. <laughs> Send us a ring here if you are. Or or you could even see us on the Orchid, because we do have uh, the, uh, yes. the rarely visited site, I guess is more likely. <laughs> this is a Berkeley Grox community out here. <laughs> yes, you can join the ever-growing Berkeley Grox community. So I noticed at the party you were sort of dancing up a storm. I did? I don't remember. <laughs> I, it must be the Cosmo I drank. <laughs> what do you dance for for fun, or do you dance to like attract the women, or what do you dance for? I don't know. I was in my own state there, like my own <laughs> world, I guess. Well, very good. Well, you know, if you're a shrimp, you might actually be trying to attract customers. You mean so they can eat them more? Well, actually, yes. So there's certain types of shrimp called cleaner shrimp that exist in these little uh, alcoves. And various organisms will come by, and basically they have parasites living off of them. Ooh. And all the cleaner shrimps will just come off and eat off parasites off of them. But since there's often like several cleaner shrimps in one alcove, uh-huh. uh, they're all competing for the same business, so to speak. So in order to attract the fish to basically swim by, uh-huh. they have to make a little dance, and apparently the fish will swim more closely to these other shrimp right. they are dancing as opposed to the other one. Is this the only way for the fish to get their food? I mean, the shrimp. This is the main way that they get their food is through this uh, process. And actually, the researchers were wondering whether or not they just did this because they were hungry or whether or not it was just sort of natural response any time a fish came by. And so they tested this. They put, like, well-fed shrimp and not-so-well-fed shrimp in the same tank. Right. And it turns out that well-fed shrimp dense less than the poorly-fed shrimp. Oh, man. So uh, starvation can lead to dancing, huh? Alcohol can do that as well. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So this is very fascinating results, and it was actually published in the recent edition of Current Biology. If you weren't dancing for shrimp, would you be going for rotten fish? Uh, yeah, I actually like chum. Chum, chum? Is, chum is one of my favorite dishes. What is chum? Chum's the stuff that they use to attract sharks, dead ah. fish, and rotten fish that they throw into the ocean. How about rotten eggs? I don't know if sharks like rotten eggs. So uh, it turns out the smell or um, hydrogen sulfide of these rotten eggs has a very interesting physiological effect. And uh, in a study they did with mice, it's shown that if you put some H2S gas, hydrogen sulfide gas, into uh, the atmosphere, these mice go into sort of semi-hibernation state. Oh, okay. Why is that? They're not quite sure what the, the physiology behind this is, but it seems to disrupt the uh, oxidative phosphorylation in the cells. I think it's just the fact that it smells like rotten eggs that maybe they pass out. <laughs> <laughs> but the metabolic rate actually plummets about 90%, and their body temperature goes down considerably as well. 
Is this some sort of hibernation response to sort of survive in these kind of conditions where there's a lot of hydrogen sulfide gas? We're not sure. It's just a very interesting effect. But medical scientists feel that there may be some promise in using this technique for slowing down people's metabolic weight. For example, if they need surgery or something where they need to have more time stopping the body. Mm-hmm. So sort of a long-term anesthetic. It could be. And then once you return the oxygen levels to normal and take out the hydrogen sulfide, they're perfectly uh-huh. fine. It remains to be seen if this could work in humans, but uh, <laughs> it, it would be very interesting if it did. Very good, or just eat a lot of rotten eggs. <laughs> so this was in the recent issue of Science, or there's a nice summary in the Chemical and Engineering News. So Frank, are you very good at keeping time? See. That was two seconds there, right? Okay, very good. So uh, do you know when it's time to eat then? When I'm hungry. Do you yeah. always eat when you're hungry? Yeah, I listen to my stomach. It speaks louder mm-hmm. than my mind. And does your stomach always seem to go off at the same time? It usually starts to consume me anyways. If you're led by your stomach, that's better than being led by other parts of your body, I guess. Oh, of course. So it actually turns out that a group of researchers have been looking at biological circadian rhythm mm-hmm. that are mediated by genes in the body. And there's one particular gene called the clock gene, the name because it controls the circadian clock in a lot of animals, mammals in particular. Mm-hmm. A group of researchers have found that this clock gene actually, when it's missing in certain types of animals, also results in those animals being fatter than normal. So is this something that's also been observed in humans? Again, they don't have human studies of this particular gene. But, you know, in animals, they can knock out a gene and see what happens to it. Interesting. So uh, does this show some uh, evolutionary aspect of why we sleep? Well, the argument is that if you disrupt the uh, circadian clock, the natural sleep-wake cycle, that perhaps these mice are no longer able to control or understand what time they're supposed to be eating. Mm -hmm. And so since eating cycles are sort of also controlled by the circadian clock, it's thought that it might not necessarily be tied to sleep-wake cycle, but because rhythms are necessarily controlled by circadian rhythms, they won't be able to eat as well. Oh. So it's fascinating results, and in case you're ever wondering what time it is to eat, you can thank your circadian rhythm. And this was very interesting work. It was work done by Fred Turek and Joseph Takahashi of Northwestern University, and it was published in the recent edition of Science. So, Charles, how good are your eyes? I can see with exactly 80-20 vision. Wow, so you can actually see molecules <laughs> jingling around? I thought I was going the other way. <laughs> okay, so you can see Jupiter then. Well, I can see a big blob in front of me that looks like you. Thanks. I must be everywhere then. You are everywhere, much like God. Oh. In fact, I think there are probably some people that might consider you God. Yeah, except I eat ice cream too. <laughs> God doesn't eat ice cream? I don't think he knows how to enjoy life. Well, as far as I could tell from the suffering that's caused on the planet. <laughs> So a group of researchers here at Berkeley have shown they can image optically surfaces up to 60 nanometers in resolution, which is far better than what they have currently on the market. What is the, what is the current resolution? Current resolution is somewhere around 400 nanometers. Oh, wow. So tenfold improvement almost. Yes, indeed. And this is optical, so it's not using atomic force microscope where they have a pin, you know, sort of scraping the surface to feel what it looks like. So how are they able to get this type of measurement since it's smaller than the wavelength of light? They use a thin film of silver as lens and UV light and it's some trick with going beyond the diffraction limit of Mm. how light diffracts at that length scale so it turns out you know when you have an optical propagation of light waves there's a diffraction limit so that's why it's very hard to focus less than the wavelength of your light but there's a very interesting property where there's evanescent waves which are also propagating 
from the surface, and it turns out those decay exponentially, but if you're somehow able to capture them by focusing it, for example, using these uh, nano lens that they've created, hmm. then you can be able to scan at far greater detail than what we have right now. Oh, amazing. So are they going to try and uh, develop this for what kind of application? There's tons of applications, but for example, this means you could have incredibly small pits on your DVDs and have, oh. you know, exabytes or terabytes of data on it, right. you know, basically put the entire Library of Congress onto a DVD. I think it should go on the head of a pin, really. The head of a pin? <laughs> Man, you're pretty aggressive there. <laughs> <laughs> then we could get rid of the Library of Congress, except it has nice benches to sit at. So this is a very interesting work. It was directed by Shang Zhang, a UC Berkeley associate professor of mechanical engineering. And there's a very, very nice summary on the Berkeley press release. And that's all for our look at current developments in the world of science this week. In a few moments, Bonnie Fiofora joins us to talk about investing online. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox. The stock market, perhaps one of the most chaotic systems and least understood in the world. While it may take a lifetime to understand these systems, there are those who have developed tools to understand its dynamics, at least in the short term. Well, joining us today is a very special guest, independent consultant and author, Bonnie Biafori, who will tell us a lot about her work with investing online. Ms. Biafori, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Grox today. Well, thanks, Frank. So you've written this very fascinating book, Online Investing Hacks. Could you tell us a little bit about it? I'd be happy to. This is a, a book in one of the hack series that O'Reilly publishes, which probably don't have to explain it so much to you, but um, a lot of people kind of wonder what you know the hacks are all about. And basically the idea is these books have a hundred different topics which can range from, you know, just clever tricks, elegant solutions, or even just lesser known techniques for doing things. And they had started out with a uh, you know, covering programming languages more in line with, you know, just their really well-known technical books. And then they expanded the series to things like programs like Excel and Word. And then they finally decided to, you know, move into investing in personal finance. So the online investing hacks is is a little bit different because it actually provides investment education for people who might be good with computers but are more beginner at investing. And then at the same time, it also provides a lot of information about websites and online tools and things you can do with spreadsheets for people who know more about investing but you know want to get better with the uh, online and computerized tools. I tried to, to really cover both sides of the audience. And I guess that, you know, the last part about it is O'Reilly is really good about, you know, actually they, they like to have their books be 
entertaining. So mm-hmm. um, it, it's written so that it's it's funny and and yet still has some some pretty deep tricks that'll keep more advanced readers interested. And you're in a more recent book, QuickBooks 2005. Is that a sequel to Online Hacks or no? That's different because that's really focusing specifically on QuickBooks, which is um, an accounting and bookkeeping package for for small businesses. But actually, O'Reilly is talking to me about a sequel to Online Investing Hacks, so we might uh, have another book out probably in 2006 for, you know, more hacks in the finance and investing arena. And tell me, how did you get involved in the uh, stock market and uh, writing for it? Well, that's a pretty interesting story. I'm, I'm not quite sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess it all starts, I mean, I'm, you know, at, at heart, I'm, I'm an engineer, and so I'm, I'm eternally curious. And over the years, I, I just can't help myself from picking up, you know, tips and tricks on all sorts of things, whether it's, you know, how to use Microsoft Word or Project or Quicken uh, or online investing. I started, well, probably about 10 years ago, I started teaching classes uh, about online investing as well as just straight investing, how to study stocks, and then started writing a column called WebWatch for Better Investing Magazine which mm-hmm. almost five years ago. And it just seems like over you know over the years, I just kept gathering more and more information on on online investing resources. Mm-hmm. I had written a book on studying stocks that won several awards and really is the funniest book you'll you'll ever read on investing that's called the stock selection handbook so when o'reilly was you know was out looking for an author for online investing hacks you know my agent called me and he said you know you have to write this book <laughs> we talked to the editor um, there and you know the thing that's really interesting you know when i when i speak or present or teach classes a lot of the people think i know everything and th- of course i don't but the interesting thing about either teaching or writing this book is i just i learned so much from doing it so i mean even though i knew a lot of the websites and the things in this book i, I mean i really just learned a ton uh, more from from writing it and and from continuing to write about things so besides a computer what else do you need for uh, doing a good online investing nothing <laughs> maybe some patience uh-huh. um some discipline, but uh, that's the thing that's so great about uh, online investing is that there's just there's so many resources that you can get to, and you know, and quite honestly, I mean, someone doesn't really even need to have their own computer because libraries these days have computers that are connected to the internet. So a lot of the a lot of people that I know, you know, can go to the library and do everything that they want, you know, without having a computer at home. Could you tell us maybe a little bit of your favorite hacks? Oh, sure. I probably have too many favorites to go through, <laughs> but I'll, I'll try to, to, to highlight some of them. I think probably my favorite hack is, is number 36. They are all numbered. Mm-hmm. And that one's called Use Rational Values to Buy and Sell Wisely. And I have to admit, I didn't actually write this one. A good friend of mine, Ellis Traub, uh, wrote this. And he talks about how you use the long-term average PEs uh, for stock to determine a good price for purchase. So PEs are? Price-earnings ratios. Okay. The thing that's really interesting is that as part of that hack, there's an example in there that has a portfolio of sample stocks that are, you know, tend to be larger quality stocks. But still, the thing that's really interesting is that we show the the prices and the value of that portfolio at different points in time over the last 
several years, and and what you see is that how the stock prices went from like completely euphoric to totally panicked and dismal, and then you know back to euphoric just over a few years. Mm-hmm. And and the bottom line is, if if someone actually uses those long term uh, price earnings ratios to buy the stock at a reasonable price, then they can make money, and they can also protect themselves from losing money. It, it, you know, when when the euphoria goes away, I mean, it's easy to do. So, I think that just from a standpoint of uh, people being successful with investing, particularly in individual stocks, that's key. Another hack that I really like, because I I use it a lot, is uh, hack number 23, which is obtaining averages for an industry and the competition. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things, if if you're looking at a stock in an industry, um, ideally you want to get one of the uh, the, the stronger competitors in that industry, and therefore you want to get a company that has uh, financial measures that are above average for the industry, where above average is in a good way. And so the the hack starts out by talking about some sites like Yahoo Finance and Reuters Investor that that have industry averages on the stock pages, but it also explains um, how to use the Reuters Investor screening tool, which is called Power Screener. Mm-hmm. To, which is a, just an amazing, amazing free tool that you can use. You can you can specify what data you want for the companies, and then you can download all of that data into a spreadsheet and and calculate your own averages. So you know, for instance, one of the things that I would do if if I'm looking at a, a particular industry and I've got you know, a couple of companies within that industry that I'm interested in, I'll use the screen to download all the data for for companies in that industry and, and calculate the averages for that set of companies and then compare the, the companies kind of on my short list to those averages. And I mean, it's just amazing that you can do this for free. <laughs> I mean, are all the good information available freely, or should you also subscribe to one of those online subscription sites where you pay like monthly fee of bucks or hundred bucks? You know, there is there is a lot of good information for free. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that someone someone can definitely manage their investments without subscribing to anything. But there there are a couple of of subscriptions that I think are uh, that provide an awful lot for the money. One of them is. I mean, most people who invest in mutual funds have heard the name Morningstar. Well, Morningstar has a premium service that includes just so much information. They have, besides their reports on mutual funds, they actually have pretty thorough reports on a lot of individual stocks. But one of my favorite tools, and you, there is a, a free version, but it's the subscription version is much, much better. This tool is called the Portfolio X-Ray. Uh-huh. And basically what you do is you can create a portfolio that includes all of your investments, that, that includes stocks, mutual funds, cash, you know, any kinds of investments that you have. And what the portfolio x-ray does is it it will show you your allocations in all sorts of different categories by the market cap of the stocks, by foreign, where it's invested uh, globally, the different industries and sectors. I mean, it just slices and dices your portfolio into all these categories. But the thing that's so cool about it is that it actually looks at the, the investments held by your mutual funds 
so that when you see how your portfolio is allocated, it actually includes, uh, you know, a dissection of the mutual funds that you hold as well, which you just can't, you can't get anywhere else. And the premium service is, is not that much a year. What are some of the mistakes that people make when they invest online? Well, I, I think that most of the mistakes that people make are probably more psychological, but from a standpoint of something that's specific to online investing is with, when people do trades online. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, one of the things that can happen is if a website is slow or something happens to your connection, if you click the, the buy button... <laughs> to buy some shares of stock right. or a mutual fund or whatever uh-huh. and, and nothing happens you know people get impatient and they click the button again not a good idea <laughs> so you're buying it two or three times then yeah and and the thing is the the brokers aren't gonna say oh i'm sorry you made that mistake we'll be happy um <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, if if you are doing a trade online and you you click that that buy button to pl- or submit to place the order, if nothing happens, I mean, you really have to kind of back off and you know make sure that the trade didn't go through. But I think more importantly, there there are two other things. I, I think first of all, sometimes people just because of the the ease of doing things online, people end up maybe buying and selling more frequently than they should. Mm-hmm. just because it's so easy, and, yeah. and that's really not a good idea. Um, and the other thing is that, you know, people can forget to have a life. There's so much information online. I mean, quite honestly, you know, I could be, well, I am on my computer almost day and night, <laughs> but, I mean, I could be researching investments and personal finance things constantly and, um, you know, to the point where I have no idea what, you know, what the weather is like or, you know, what, what your friends' names are. I, I think that people have to just kind of show show some personal discipline right. and, and not let that overwhelming amount of information uh, just suck them in. What are you excited about these days? Are there any um, current developments in web technology or, or the stock market that interest you? Well, one of the things that that, that I've been reading about uh, recently, it's kind of interesting with with Google's IPO. There's there's been a lot more talk about this Dutch auction format, which opens things up to a lot more to individual investors as opposed to the people who have an in with uh, the company that's underwriting the IPO. So the institution. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like in the past, if, if you didn't have have some sort of account or relationship, pretty good relationship with um, an underwriting firm, you know, there, there was no way to get into an IPO, whereas the Dutch auction, you know, opens that up to, to other people. And I think... I mean, it sort of seems to me like just just as the online brokerages brought the lower cost and more information to individual investors, that that IPOs might be the next in line. Hmm, so, so it democratizes the process. Process yes, exactly. The one thing about IPOs, though, is that you know individual investors need to really do their homework before uh-huh. before getting into the IPO market because there are probably easier ways to make money in the stock market than finding the the right IPO. Finally, for people like me who don't really know much about the stock market, are these good books to actually start for investing, or are there any references you would recommend looking up first? Well, I actually I think I think that the online investing hacks book is is actually a a, a great book. For someone who who wants to get started, even though even though it's 
it's set up as a hundred separate topics. The the book, first of all, walks you through the, the, the process from initially finding investments that you might want to um, invest in and then obtaining data and then how to analyze it, how to do online trades. It kind of walks, it, it really takes you from the beginning to the end. But the the one thing about, um, I think what makes this good for people who are are getting started is that Chapter 4 on Fundamental Analysis is is kind of a massive chapter um, because it, it, it explains pretty much all the concepts underlying, um, you know, buying stocks based on uh, company fundamentals, things like the growth, sales growth and earnings, um, earnings growth, you know, financial strength and, and debt and different things like that. So it really, it really does walk someone through those concepts. And then there's another chapter on technical analysis. If, if someone really wants to, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't happen to, to do day trading, but I do use technical analysis to to help me decide, you know, when to buy or sell. And then the, the chapter on mutual funds, you know, explains the, the things to either look for or avoid in, in mutual funds. So depending on what someone wants to use, it, it really is a pretty good book for a beginner. So I had this friend who thinks that um, you can model the market using uh, systems like a neural network. I'm, I'm not quite sure, you know, what to say about that. I mean, one of the things that I see and when I look at the stock market, for instance, you can have a big quality growth company with great prospects and there could be a news story that is only minutely related to that company. Mm-hmm. And yet the price of that company will could drop significantly because of that news story. And then two weeks later, it's right back up where it was, if not higher. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this this whole thing about, I mean, I think that, that probably someone could model the market just based on, um, you know, a lot of the institutions have these programmed trading algorithms. And so if you took all the rules from those, you, you could probably figure out what the market would do. But I mean, I really think that it's it's really just a lot easier to, to look at some of the basics, go with those. Almost before, I guess we're running a little bit out of time here. Uh, are there any last words you'd like to add about yourself or your books? The only thing I'll, I'll say, I'm, I'm continuing to work in this online investing arena and actually um, as well as online personal finance. You can look for some, some more books to come out in the next couple of years on, on different things on the same topic. And, and uh, I actually do travel around the country to, to speak at different uh, events. So I'd be happy to hear from, from people in the audience if they have any questions or want some additional information. Great. Thanks for joining us on Berkeley Rocks today. Well, thank you. And we were just talking to Ms. Bonnie Biafori, author of Online Investing Hacks and QuickBooks. The books are now available online at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and bookstores around the country. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, we'll find out what Gurgum is, so stay tuned.
now here's Tokyo Kid with the answer to last week's question of the week. What is uh, guagam? Well, guagam is a polysaccharide. It is a chain of many sugar molecules and it has an amazing effect of being able to seal food because it uh, can capture the moisture within the, the molecular chain and it's also used in paint to be an emulsifier so it is able to hold all the particles of paint until it's necessary for it to dry and then become a part of your wall. And that is the Guagam. Oh, yes, well, right, Tokyo Kid. Very, very interesting. It's too bad Tokyo is not part of the Great British Empire, but it would be, in fact, amazing if it were. Yeah, so just uh, taking a break from my spot of afternoon tea. And the question I had while sipping this tea, Earl Grey, of course, was yes, what are these crazy magic squares you all, you continentals, talk about? Magic squares and all, right, yes. Well, if you know the answer, I think. You know the answer. You can email us here, grox at hotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but the Empire will thank you for it. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Therese. <laughs>